This is episode number 523 of the Health Fitness Podcast, brought to you by Fight in association with Smith Street Paleo. Please do hop over to smithstreetpaleo.com, check out all of the yummy goodness, paleo food plans delivered to your home or office, or all of the cool recipes that you can actually knock up yourself at home. Get over there now, smithstreetpaleo.com. Welcome back to another edition of the podcast, folks. And again, another quite special show here as we air out what was Inner Talks number 18. Inner Talks is an event that we have here at Inner Fight monthly, every second to third month, interviewing or just hearing from people that have done something pretty cool and want to share their story. In Inner Talks 18, it was all about surviving the Sahara, where we heard from the three, four guys that just got back from Marathon de Sable, a 250-kilometer self-supported foot race across the Sahara. I got the opportunity to sit down with these guys in front of an awesome audience and talk to them about their experience, what they learned, and then some really cool questions from the floor. So we're going to play that out in today's version of the podcast. I really enjoyed chatting to them, and I really hope that you guys enjoy the show. Thank you, everyone, for coming down. And I'm super excited to talk to these four guys. And I, I hope they entertain you the, the same way that they've actually entertained me for the last sort of six months. So it should be good. Just to give you guys some background on the race that we're going to speak about, Marathon de Sable actually started in 1984 when a gentleman by the name of Patrick Bauer, who his profession was actually organizing concerts, he went into the Sahara Desert on a little bit of an exploration. And he, it took him about two weeks. He covered about 350 kilometers the first time he went there. Didn't find any water and basically had quite a torrid time. When he went back, he reflected on it and thought it would be a good idea to organize a race there. And that's how Marathon de Sable started. Two years later, there was about 25 people that ran 250 kilometers or thereabouts over six days through the Sahara. So the race has been going since then. And it now has around 1,300, 1,000 to 1,300 competitors run each year. It is one of the most incredible experiences, as we're going to hear. It's also one of the most brutal parts of the Earth. There's certain parts where you don't know if you're on Mars or if you're somewhere else. So it's quite a unique race. And that's why I think in the world of running and of ultra running, it remains one of the most celebrated races. They say it's the hardest. I actually believe that it's one of the hardest, but there are other hard races out there for different reasons. So it's very difficult to say which race is actually the hardest, but it's definitely one of the most iconic ultra races. Around in 2000, towards the end of 2017, Rickson actually came to me and said he wanted to run the race. So he was going into this with one marathon to Sable finish already under his belt. I have no idea why he wanted to go back again, but we'll hear all about that. And obviously he's quite a good salesman, and he sold it to these three <laughs> somehow. I'm not sure if he sold it to them or sold it to their wives. 
I think next on board was this handsome guy, Vikram, who we'll speak a little bit more about later. Akbar then jumped in, and he's got some big plans to share with us later. And I think it was almost a family connection that got Carl, the young pup of the crew, involved. I don't know if you bullied him or not. But guys, what you've done, first of all, I just want to give them a massive congratulations. Obviously, they all finished. What I'll do is I'll just shoot them a few questions and then we'll leave some time at the end. I'm sure a lot of you have different questions as well. So I think it's quite interesting to start with you, Rickson. Why on earth did you go back to this race for the second time? Is that on? Up. It works difference in the desert. So. Sorry. Go. Okay, so I think um, the first year I decided to go and do this, I was going through a path of change for myself. And I had a really nice experience with the Marathon de Sable, but the long day, which was uh, in 2018, 86-kilometer uh, uh, stage, uh, one of my tent mates who we aligned ourselves with said, okay, we're in the same uh, uh, sort of a time that we keep with our race. So we said, let's, let's just do this long stage together. The good thing about that guy was he pulled a lot of people with him. So if anyone was failing, he just dragged them with him. Uh, the not so good thing is I didn't get a quiet moment. I was uh, told about these dark places your mind will go into and the 86 kilometers was really just us talking about a lot of food uh, the, the, whole, the whole trip. Um, so when I, the reason I wanted to go back there again is I really wanted to do the long stage uh, alone. Um, and I think uh, that was the primary goal for going back to Marathon de Sable this year. Yeah. Amazing. Vic, I remember the first time you came to Track Tuesday and you told me that you weren't really into running much. You'd run, like, maximum 10 kilometers. A month later, Rickson had conned you into signing up to MDS. Like, what happened in that month? Yeah, can you hear me? Um, it's just something I wanted to... Running was never really my strong point, so it's just something I wanted to step outside the box and see um, how much I could challenge myself and how much I could push myself for running. Um, also, the way Rickson sold me MDS said there would be lots of good food and, and stuff like that. Well, it definitely wasn't. <laughs> we'll come on to that later. Agba, before you left, a few days before you left, you made a really quite strong and emotional post on Instagram. Talk to us about why you signed up for this year's race. Um, for me, it was the beginning of a journey um, in terms of where I wanted to go on my fitness level. And... Um, Especially when I joined Inner Fight, I could see where I was going in terms of my mental strength and my physical strength. And I needed a challenge to really push myself from, from that perspective. And Rick said I'd been talking about this race, and I actually never run before. Um, I'd, maximum I'd done was maybe 110K. So for me, it was completely getting out of my comfort zone and getting to us doing, going and doing something that I'd never even thought about and so that was on my own my own journey but then other things started to come into play uh, my wife and I have a very charity that's very close to our heart so that became a compelling reason for me to link those together and run for my charity and then to be honest with you the video that I made uh, the training that we had done going up to that point which was about four or five months the training has uh, brought a lot of my you know inner strength out and what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. 
So that video was basically a combination of the training journey that had gotten us to this point where we could do something like MDS. And I felt going into MDS, you would only succeed if you had certain objectives in mind. Like how Rickson said, he went back because he wanted to do the long stage by himself. We actually have a great story about that that we'll get to. Um, but I think it was important going into that that you defined exactly what you wanted to get out of the race. And that's why I did that video. Awesome. Carl, were you bullied into this by Rickson? <laughs> why did you Pretty sign much, up? Uh, I think the day before I signed up, uh, Vic was every, every second of the training is like, are you going to sign up? Are you going to sign up? Are you going to sign up? And I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. So yeah, eventually I did sign up. But I was actually going to sign up last year when uh, uh, Rickson did this for the first time. But uh, then this year I was like, why not? Since I have these two as well doing it, might as well go in and do it and get done with it. What were you expecting, mate? Um, I knew it was hard because uh, I constantly spoke to Nixon about this. Uh, it's something, um, what was I expecting? It is something challenging. Like, uh, I didn't have a good enough reason not to do. I've never done a marathon. I've always done 10Ks of standard charter. And I was like, might as well, like, do this and, like... Uh, Ultra running, I've never, I've never done it. I mean, the first time I asked you, I was like, what is the hardest part? And you told me, like, running is the easiest part. The management is the harder part of it. So during the training, it's like, uh, there's so many, like, to make the most of every minute, that's, that's what I learned from the whole experience. From the training till I finished MBS. Because it gets hard when you're running during the day. And the only, only thing you can do is, just keep moving, keep moving forward. Because, like, I really look at it, I'm like, I should stop. And I'll be like, dude, this is hard. And he'll be like, yeah, bro, let's just go, let's just go. And, yeah, that's how we complete, I think, MDS. Awesome stuff. Rickson, for you, mate, going through the training the second time, you'd been through this the year before. You knew what it was like. You knew the challenges. What was it like the second time round? Did you ever sort of start running and thinking, why am I doing this? The company was just amazing. <laughs> no, uh, all jokes aside, honestly, it was uh, very different for me training with uh, the guys this time because uh, when I took it up in 2018, I was pretty much every single run of mine was alone. Uh, so I got through a lot of audiobooks and I got through a lot of podcasts and I got a lot of me time um, and I got a lot of uh, videos out as well. This time around, it was really interesting because there was so much of energy uh, that was, you know, that we were feeding off of each other. It was just, uh, it was a whole different experience. The race on its own uh, was absolutely, I mean, a very, very, an entirely different experience from 2018. Just from the outset of being in a tent where you know, where you form 50% of the people in the tent already, there are eight people that are in uh, a designated tent, and we had... The four of us formed the brown zone, or the, 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 the chocolate to the Oreo cookies, as they called it. Anyways, uh, there's a joke about that too. But, but uh, So the four of us were already there, so there was this energy that was, uh, you know, already, we were familiar with each other. And the other, the other guys in the tent were, you know, they added to the camaraderie of it. But it was, um, it was a world of uh, different experience. Um, I also know as a result of... Uh, 2018 and 2019 that I've 
made my peace with being done with MDS. I don't expect to go back there to seek a, a very a, another happy person in the front row. <laughs> I just said MDS, though, yeah. <laughs> Akma, you, you started training with me sort of first. It, it was about October time, and you're a month or so ahead of these guys. Talk to us a little bit about the early parts of training, how not being a runner, how you felt, and how that process went for you. Yeah, that, I mean, that was really interesting because um, I hadn't done any running before and the way you set up the, the program was to initially introduce me to running and get me to go start doing smaller distances and then accumulating the distances. But it was, it was interesting for me how I found out that running for me became what can you do next, how you can get to the next number, and that became the journey in itself. Like, So I did 10K, then I did half a marathon, then I did marathon, and I started extending myself each over the numbers, and each number became a challenge in itself. So the progression of it really worked into my favor because I knew eventually I'll have to go do this multi-stage um, race where you're doing so many distances on so many days, but it was the progression that really helped in terms of ticking off the numbers. So it was easy. Good. Yeah. Vix, to me, and generally I think to people, you look like the kind of guy that likes the nice things in life and comfort and all this kind of stuff. And I remember explaining to you certain things that you wouldn't be able to have in the Sahara. Talk us through your experience about doing without things and, and maybe the time you lost your shit in the Nissan out in Al-Qudra. Um, okay, yeah. So the, the, the toughest part for me was just the management, the whole management of, of the race um, in terms of, you know, you've got to make your food and, and that was not really the issue. It was just, you know, everything had to fall into place. So you had to put your water in the stove and then you've got to light it and then you're eating and then the, the spoon drops, but you don't know if someone's peed there. And it's just, it's just all that management. And you just got to learn to let the little things go, you know, like there was a sandstorm and your bag is just completely filled with sand. You know, you're brushing your teeth and it's just full of sand. And it's, it's just those little things you just got to learn to let go. Yeah. Huh? I think, sorry, I think at one point uh, he looked at me with everything that was going on with the situation and sandstorm. And he's like, I really appreciate that song, Let It Go Now. <laughs> I was like, I have that song in my mind. It's just you got to let things go. And but that's mate, what how I'm did you, like... Everyone packed their bags, but I think someone else packed your bag because it was quite neat. Yeah. So, so how did you go on the second day when you had to repack it with all that sand? Talk to us more about those small things. So I had my agent, Natasha, pack for me. And she had everything, you know, on the computer and computerized and everything. Um, yeah, the, the packing was, because it was my first time, I just started dumping everything in there. I just took everything as much as I can. And my bag reached 12 kilos. And... I think on the second day, it was a 13-kilometer trek through the dunes. And that's when I really felt I, I, I might have taken a bit too much because your back starts giving way. And, and uh, Just so everyone knows, in this race, you have to carry everything that you need except water for the whole six days. So all of their food, that's why the packs at the start weigh somewhere. The lightest packs weigh about 7 kilos up to about 13, 14 kilos when they're loaded with water. So... And when we went in the weigh-in, I was with Akbar, and uh, they just looked at us exactly what you said. So we just we put our bags on this weighing scale, and, and as long as it was below 15, we were really happy. So I turn around and look at Akbar, and I'm like, yes, it's 12 kilos. 
And the French lady just looks at me and she goes, oh, these guys have no clue what's going to happen to them. <laughs> But I think it's, it's also like part of the management that I think Rickson already knew as part of the experience. When we did our final um, bag check-in here in, in a fight, we were at pretty reasonable weights. Like I was at nine kilos, which was a really good weight to start the race with. But what happens is, at, at, especially in my case, when we got to the actual Sahara Desert, and the first night you're, I was there, you have one day to like repack your bag and put your stuff in. That first night was kind of cold. And one thing that I still can't deal with is cold. So I kind of panicked. And I was like, oh shit, it's going to be really cold throughout the, throughout the thing. I'm going to pack more clothes. So when I went into my final uh, weigh-in, I came in around 11.5, which was, you know, that's pretty heavy going. going. So that aspect of the race is something that you, can't be, you, you really can't prepare for. And I think one advantage of having done it a couple of times is you kind of know what to expect when it comes to the bag management and the race management part of it. Um, which contributes to how you do in the race itself. Rickson, you'd been on the start line before. What was it like day one? Talk us through that process. Explain to everyone what happens on day one of Marathon de Sable. So um, every day actually begins with the same ACDC song, right? I think everyone knows this. That's the one song that's not on my iPhone uh, because we heard that every single day. Now, uh, the starting point is really interesting. Day one, everyone shows up. 8.30, 9 o'clock, whatever is in our race book. Uh, we get there, we, have, uh, we know um, the terrain we're running on because the race book gives us all that information. Uh, you have Patrick Bauer who will basically address everyone in French and whether he makes uh, a mistake in, you know, in saying what he does or not, his translator will repeat exactly what he said. So if he says, Oh, we're going to start at 8.30. He says, oh, we're going to start at 8.30. No, it's actually 9 o'clock. No, it's actually 9 o'clock. So it's constantly just back and forth. And we'll say, okay, this is going to be a while. And uh, you know what? Uh, the energy is very high. The energy is very, very high. Uh, I, real I, re I remember the first time, well, last year when I did this, on day one, I was excited, but there were knots in my stomach. I just wanted to go. This year, it was a lot more calm. I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed uh, seeing the expressions on people's faces, you could tell who is doing it for the first time and you could tell, you know, people who are just sitting and looking around and say, okay, you know, I'm taking it all in right now. Like, I saw the excitement on these guys' face. I was so kicked and I was a little jealous. I was like, yeah, I experienced this last year, but I wish I was going through this emotion again right now, but it wasn't there. It was like, awesome. We're going to start. We're going to gun through this and let the day go on. Yeah. Vix, talk us through day one. Day one was was just the most craziest experience. It was everything was just going through your head. You're like, okay, I'm not supposed to run too fast in the beginning. I'm supposed to go take it easy. I had no idea what the terrain was going to be out there. Um, it was just complete nervousness. You're excited. Um, you're standing with all the guys that you've been training for. You know, um, and I think the first day you're just so full of energy. And uh, for me, that was like the most exciting time of the, the first day. <laughs> <laughs> it was just it like, gets wow. worse. Yeah, and then the next day it was like, okay, I gotta get through this, and then <laughs> pain starts kicking in, and, and it's just a complete mental battle from there. Carl, what were your thoughts at the end of day one? End of day one, I'm like, thank God I got this done with. Um, 
And I was looking at what more can I remove from the bag because, uh, like they all said, the first day is like you go with nine, but in the, just before the race you start packing extra shit you don't require. So like my battery pack I threw off the first day because it didn't work as well, quite fair. Uh, and a couple of other things I started giving off. So because um, my shoulders are hurting because I'm like, oh, it's too heavy. And that's when you realize, oh, I didn't strap the bag too well. So again, it's like a lot of things you learn after day one. And then you keep uh, debating, should I run or walk the next stage? I think I should run because I'm like, oh, no, then the long day is there. I'll be tired by then. So that was more of the debate after day one. For folks... The first three days of NDS, a lot of people say is a warm-up. The fourth day is a long day, which this year was seven, around 70 kilometers. So guys, maybe Akbar, tell us what's happening in those first three days. Are you saving energy? Are you thinking about the long day? How can you create a state of mind that helps you get through? Because those days are also very challenging. Yeah, it, it was interesting. In my case, I, I did exactly that because obviously I had, I had a conversation with you regarding your experience. Um, I went in knowing I was ready physically and mentally to race. Um, so I went in thinking, first few days, I'm going to just take it easy, take in the experience, keep my energy level, you know, um, not go over too much, and then start ratcheting it up on the long day, and obviously the last day, which is a marathon. So that was the game plan. <laughs> But as you know, with most challenges and most experiences, especially when it comes to racing, um, things change. Uh, you just have to be ready for all kinds of different things. So for me, what happened was the first day, um, I was fine. I was racing well. Rickson and I were mostly uh, at the same pace. But halfway through the first stage, I started cramping. And I was like, wow, this is surprising. I mean, I don't usually cramp. But I think it was the excitement of the whole event and the fact that uh, the Moroccan Sahara heat is very different. It's very dry, so you don't really realize you know, how your moisture is being sucked out of your body. And what they kept telling us from the day we reached there is like, take salt tablets, take salt tablets. And you're like, okay. But then you realize that salt tablets are really, really important. You almost have to take two salt, swallow two salt, salt tablets with every bottle of water that you take. So my first day, I did okay, but I started cramping. So I was like, okay, that's the, I didn't really uh, prepare for that. And then the second day was they put in 13 kilometers of sand dunes. So everyone going in, actually, who also had a strategy like mine, uh, started thinking about the fact that the second day has 13 kilometers. So it's a bigger challenge than most people expected. So... In my case, what happened was with the 13-kilometer sand dunes, my backpack, which is 12, 13 kilos, I was working harder to fight through those dunes. And so I was expending far more energy than I thought I would in the first couple of days. But that's what racing does. You know, you just have to adapt to the different circumstances. And in my case, then what happened was as I'm fighting through the sand dunes, and I'm trying to, like, keep my pace and everything, I, at that point, I think I pulled uh, something in my leg. And um, halfway through the third, uh, the third day, I kind of didn't want to accept the fact that I was injured because that just throws off my whole uh, racing strategy. But halfway through the third day, I realized that there was something wrong with my right leg. And um, 
when I went and saw the doctor at one of the checkpoints, she's like, yeah, you've, you've strained basically a muscle in your right leg, and um, you're, you're so zoned into the race. I just looked at her, and I was like, okay, so how do you get rid of it? And um, she, looked at, she looked back at me, and she said, rest. But obviously, you're not going to do that. So, so that changed the dynamics of the race, because now I know I'm injured halfway through. I still have the long day and the marathon to go. So it completely changed um, my perspective of the race from actually racing, conserving energy over the first three days and racing to actually going through the obstacles the first three days and now then realizing I have to survive the race. Very cool. Rickson, I think you sent me a picture from the start line and that was the last time I heard from you. All communication went off, which was a great rest for me. All communication went off. You only get one email a day to your family, although you can have a number of incoming emails. Talk to us about that and the disconnection from families, friends, and from the world. So I think regardless of whether you're a runner or not, um, we, we don't realize we're, we're living in this uh, urban jungle. One of the reasons for me to go back there, or the attraction to go to one of these remote races or locations or where you're absolutely disconnected, is there is so much of stuff coming at you on a regular uh, basis how often do you get the time to sit and actually let it soak in? Form an opinion about things. Think, think to yourself. Like I said, my training uh, in year one was a lot of time alone. And uh, going, I think the difference in that and MDS is when I'm alone in Kudra, you still have access to your telephone. Everything's there. Now, the only reason you have your telephone is really to take pictures and maybe listen to some books or... Uh, Music, if you want to, or just shut up and just, you know, I mean, disconnect. It's honestly, the first time around when I went and did this, it was a game changer for me. It's almost like I had uh, um, unresolved issues or even opinions that I had to create for myself from the previous 39 years of my existence, which I dealt with all at once. It was amazing. Uh, going into it this year, I kept telling these guys, man, there's going to be this moment and you know what? I didn't have the moment. Because I think I dealt with all of this stuff um, the last time around. But just the fact that you were disconnected. And, and as Marcus said, uh, the highlight of the day was at 5.30 or 6 in the evening. Uh, it's almost like a postman walks around. A French postman walks around with a bunch of emails saying, 10th number 4, uh, here are all your uh, messages. And they give you a, this really big stack of papers. And now one person's assigned the task of passing it around to the eight people in the tent. And that is the one bit of uh, reading, I'd say, that we would just... I must have read each message about four or five times. And that was just on that day. And even when you're done with the, with the day's run, you're back in the tent, you finish eating... You're now in your sleeping bag. It's only 7.30 in the evening. You're already in your sleeping bag. The headlight's still on. And those, you know, you slowly sneak in those messages and you're reading through them because it's, it motivates you. It makes you get up the next morning and it pushes you along. But that disconnection absolutely was, is vital for, for me. I know uh, once a year I need to get to a zone where I'm absolutely disconnected and just, you know, let everything soak in. It, it was the most amazing thing for my soul. Vix, for yeah. you, three kids, like five days without them, some people might say it's nice, but I'm sure there came a point where it was tough. Yeah, it, 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 uh, it got really tough for me, but uh, just like Rickson said, the, the messages from, from most of the people here was just really what 
actually got you up in the morning and said, okay, I can do this. A lot of times in your head, you get, you know, these thoughts like, okay, I've come all the way here. I did my best. And it just it keeps on telling you like, okay, you've done your best. It's okay if you, if you don't finish it. But those messages are so encouraging and they, and, and they really help. And just like Rickson said, like we'd read these messages at night and you get really emotional because you have lack of sleep. And so I would read the messages for my kids, for my wife, for all my friends. And, you know, you'd step out of the tent and then you're like, you know, you, you're almost about to cry. And then I come back and read your message. And, Not almost. And, and I just cry. I didn't because I didn't understand it. And I was like, I, was like I, I don't know why coach doesn't say good luck. And, you know, I'm proud of you. It's just this code. And I was just like crying from, from reading it. But thank you for that. We'll explain the communication issue yeah, another exactly, time. Exactly. <laughs> Carl, you got through the first three days, and you've got the big day in front of you. How did you sleep that night? The very night. well, actually. <laughs> I was very tired from the past three days. <laughs> so it's not too difficult. Nervous for the big day? Um, not really. The strategy was quite simple. Walk it for most part of it, and that's what me and Vic actually decided we'll do. Um, till we got to 50 kilometers, and then we decided we'll go to sleep. So, again, that worked. <laughs> Talk us through that sleep at 50 kilometers. So, so basically, our, because we did that, um, the Al-Qudra, you made us do that, yeah. that whole track of 50 kilometers. So I woke up in the morning. I didn't make you do that. That yeah. was part of the training plan yeah, that you so, paid for. Sort of. I mean, you kind of did in the morning. You're like, you will run 50 kilometers. Um, so I woke up in the morning. The funny story is I woke up in the morning, and I wanted to go talk to Rickson. And I was like, because he had the experience. And I was like, I just want to know that everything will be okay. I just want to talk to him because he's been through the long stage. And as soon as I come out, I see Rickson coming in the distance. And I was like, hey, Rick. And then he just shows me this hand, which just says, I'm silent for today. And I was like, out of all the days to be silent, why today? Like, why can't you just talk today? And so he, was, he took a vow of silence. But I kept on, you know, going up to him, trying to talk to him. And actually, at one point, he had taken his sleeping bag out of the tent and gone away and, and packed his stuff. So I was like, he was out. And so I, I went up to Carl, and I was like, uh, Carl, okay, we're going to do this. We've done 50 kilometers before. In our minds, let's get through 50 kilometers, and then we can stop, and we can eat dinner and stuff like that. So basically, Carl was my Wilson. So when you have, like, you know, cast away, Carl was completely my Wilson. Every time he went away, I just felt completely lost, so I had, to, I had to find it. But that was our goal. Our goal was to get to 50 kilometers, and then when we got to that 50-kilometer checkpoint, we got something to eat, and then it was just because if you take a little bit of extra time, your body just starts crashing. And then Carl had taken a bit of a nap, so I said, okay, Carl, I'm going to go sit where the fireplace was. And I just completely crashed at, at that stage. It was just, that was, that was really tough for me. So how did you guys get back up to finish the stage? So I went up to Carl and I was like, Carl, get up. You've got to go. Natasha must be freaking out. No, no, that was not the first Yeah, she that was. was. No, no, that was not the first time. The first time you're like, dude, get up, let's go. And then we were like, okay, yeah, we'll go to the next uh, checkpoint. Next checkpoint also, he went to sleep for two hours. And yeah. that's when he comes. He's like, dude, Natasha's going to be really pissed. Let's go. I was I like, like, she must oh, be yeah, freaking out. Get up. And I don't know what Marcus must be thinking. Let's just go and finish this race. I, I was wondering why she was asking me why you were sat still. 
that's actually what was happening. But how, how is it though, guys? Because you, you made that quite light. Like, you just get to 50K, have a sleep, go the other. Like, it must have been a tough day. No, it was, it, was, it was the toughest day for me because the, the pain at that point was my knee was giving way, my shoulder was giving way because of the weight, and I had two massive blisters under my foot. So, so the pain just kept on rotating. And I remember when me and Carl were on that stage, every time I'd see um, a, a representative from MDS, I'd be like, do you have any, any painkillers? So I would collect painkillers and put them in my pocket. He had five spares. So I had five spares, so every yeah. four hours just popping a painkiller just to bring the swelling down. So that was really tough for me at that, that stage. You were together, though, and you were together right to the end. What was it like when you finished that long stage? Because it took you quite a long time. Uh, uh, what was it like? <laughs> it was, um... I mean, for me, it was, it, was quite, it was quite emotional at that stage because I knew, I knew in my mind once I finished the 76K, I think I'm going to finish this whole MDS, you know, this... Because that, for me, was that kept on playing on my mind, especially on the third day. I was five kilometers in, and we had another 32 kilometers to go, 76 the next day, and 42 the next day. And my leg was on fire, and my feet were on fire, and that's when I actually sat down, and I told myself, okay, look, we've got to break this race down into checkpoints. If you sit there and you think, okay, I've got that much more to do, it's just going to play in your mind, you're never going to finish. So you just, at that point, you just break everything down to checkpoints, and that was like sort of the turning point for me. Incredible race, isn't it, that when you've still got a marathon to go, you feel like it's over. Exactly. <laughs> it's quite surreal. Rickson, talk to us about the silence, the writing on your hand, and the encounter with the French doctor. Okay, so let me just clarify about what Vikram said. It didn't happen in the same, you know, in the same manner as he did. Like the, for three days before, I said, guys... I'm contemplating going silent on the long day so I can just be with myself. And there were jokes about it, but everyone got it. And the only person that woke up on the long day and said, Hey, Rickson, I got a question. So, and I knew, and the only reason I wrote that on my hand was for him. And I just said, <laughs> vow of silence, not speaking today. So the moment he, he spoke for like five minutes and he put a question mark at the end of it, and I just said, here. Now, we had this uh, superstar in our tent, this guy called uh, Rob Pope. We called him. The, the moment we saw him, we said, hey, look, Forrest Gump. And then when we read up about him, this guy was Forrest Gump. He ran across the U.S. five times in 18 months. And every day, or maybe um, every time we got back to the campsite, we had somebody from the media coming up to us or to our tent and saying, hey, is Rob here? We want to interview him. And you know, the guys crack jokes about this. Listen, we're human too. Ask us some questions. We can do an interview. No. Now, the, the day I decided to go silent, I think everyone knows where this is going. I had this thing written on my hand. And uh, the reason for doing that was, like I said, the biggest goal for me to go back to MDS was to do the long day alone um, and just to be with myself. So no one wants to be around uh, somebody else who isn't speaking on a 76-kilometer stage. So this was really easy. It was almost like I had no deodorant on. I, actually, I didn't. Um, and uh, so while walking through the whole course, running through uh, bits and pieces of it, getting through checkpoints, nobody spoke to me. And when they did, all I had to do was do this and say, okay, it says, wow, wow silence, not speaking today. And they just left you alone. So at one point during the first 15 kilometers, uh, 
something happened. I couldn't uh, swallow water anymore, and I threw up. And I threw up right when uh, one of the martial vehicles uh, passed by, and there was a doctor in there. So instantly, he pulled me to the side, and he said, no, you're not going anywhere. Stop right now. What happened? And I was like, wow, how do I explain to this guy? So I just showed him my palm again, and I motioned to the water, saying, it's just water. I'm fine. Go on. But later on, I caught him taking a dump in the dunes, so we made our peace with our communication. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so I think the biggest thing about being silent the whole day was I found that um, not expending any energy, just being uh, alone with your own thoughts, with your own mind, with yourself, Wow, it's amazing. Uh, it's almost like I had a reserve of uh, a, another battery pack in me that just allowed me to go at a quicker pace than it was even imaginable. So I know that the race from the year before was, uh, last year I think I took about 23 hours for the 86-kilometer stage. And I figured if I went at the same pace and we did 76 kilometers, okay, I'll get from 22 to 20, maybe 18. But you know, when you have nothing else to do but get through a course and no one's talking to you, uh, all you got to do is keep going. It was amazing. I, I, was, I got back to the, I think the first thing that I said when I got back to camp uh, at the end of the race, there was an American trio in front of me and they were just walking. I was in the background and I heard their entire conversation for like 20 kilometers. And there were so many points I wanted to jump in and say, hey, do you know what? I, I think I have something to share. And I just shut up. So the moment we got to the tent, the first thing I said is, guys, thank you so much for the company for the last 20 kilometers. I've been listening to you. These are my inputs on what you said. <laughs> but it was uh, honestly the most um, gratifying experience. And if I get into a long stage uh, ever again, I think this will be my strategy. It will be to just shut up and just get it, uh, get it over and done with. I think a lot of people were happy about the fact that I wasn't talking. Yeah, I wonder if we bring that strategy in other parts of your life. You were alone with yourself. You two were together. Akbar, where were you when all this was going on? Um, so for me, um, because of the injury I'd picked up on the third day, it was, it was a huge uh, day of reckoning for me because I knew that I had to get through the long stage and the marathon on basically one leg. But I think they put the long stage there for a reason. And I think a lot of people go back for the long stage because like Rickson said you you find out a lot about yourself in in that time because it just throws so many challenges at you it makes you go into deep dark places that you have to figure out how to get out of and all of that basically happened for me because I was um, on, uh, essentially on one leg but um, it's a beautiful thing you know it's uh, I can say that now because I've experienced it and I, I kind of know why people go back for that because once you get through it, once you get through over the challenges in a place like the Sahara Desert, um, you know, you, it's, it's magic. Something special happens inside of you. And like Rickson said, you just realize there's so much inside of you that you can use in your mind and your body to conquer whatever is in front of you. And for me, the long stage was actually a culmination of the struggle that started for me a day before when I realized that this race was about survival and halfway through the long stage, I'm fighting, I'm struggling, I'm, you know, I'm going through everything emotionally and physically and you just reach a, you just reach a stage where you're like, 
wow, I mean, I'm doing this and I'm doing this here and this is incredible and you just feel a sense of gratitude that you get this opportunity. It's weird. It's, it's one of those feelings that you have to be there to experience it and um, it's, uh, it was special for me, in, which is surprising to say when you're thinking, okay, you're suffering so much, but while you're suffering, is, there's beauty in that. Amazing. Vix, going back onto your personal grooming issues, five days in because you have a rest day, stinking, tired, how did you feel, mate? Just, like, like I said before, you just got to learn to like, let those, those little things go and that's what was so amazing about this race is that those, you just don't focus on those silly things. You don't need those things. You know what I mean? It's, it, that was just, for me, one of the lessons that I learned that those small things just don't really matter. You just put on your clothes, you put on the same clothes every day, and you get up and you just get the job done and you come back and everything's just so organized in that way. So, so that's, yeah, that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I had learned. And, I, and I, it was in the first day that I was, I realized, the first day I think we had a sandstorm. So literally the tent was basically on your face while you're sleeping. And you tell yourself, Okay, either I I gotta get some rest, either I'm just gonna get this let this bother me, or just focus on getting some rest, waking up in the morning, do what you have to do, and get the race done. So, incredible. Yeah, Carl, 42 kilometers, a marathon separated you from the finish line. Talk us through the last day. So we started off uh, with the intention that the last five kilometers gonna go all in. We're just gonna run and just like the fastest pace in the whole. Uh, um, five stages, six stages, I say five, sorry. Um, we started off and uh, in the sixth kilometer, no, on the tenth, we had to go up the mountain. So we reached the mountain and then we, me and Vic look at each other and we're like, oh God, there's a waiting line to climb up. It took us just one hour just to go up and come down that mountain. So and suddenly everyone was all about rules out there. You can't cut and you can't go around. It was kind of fair because it was more of safety. But then we got through with most of the, the marathon, like, in, in the time we planned. But however, the last five kilometers were hard, were very, very hard. Because you knew you are finishing, and uh, you could see the finish line five kilometers away. That's the worst part. So you like, you just keep looking there, like, okay, we can do this. We got this. We got this. It's like, it's a lot of emotions. It was like, you know, uh, you just keep thinking of the last few days and how you've gone through it. And... Uh, it, it was very emotional, actually. Like, uh, when I reached the finish line, it was just amazing, actually. Yeah. It was more than amazing, mate. Y- yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's hard to explain, like, that feeling. Like, um, I even skipped uh, coming to the camera properly at that point. I was like, when you, you get the medal and you're just like, wow. wow. Yeah. Rickson, your second medal. Did it feel any different than the first? I stared at the first one a lot more than I did this one. The experience was very different from the last year. Um, there were more takeaways. Yeah, there's a side of me that's saying, if I did it the third time, I would change these things about it. But I, I, don't, I don't see that. Uh, I think I want to take on something different. Um, the reason I got into... The reason I signed up for Marathon de Sable is actually a, an interesting story. I was not a runner. Um, I've been uh, with Interfight, training, CrossFit, 
and the, the runs that come into our training sessions on a regular basis are smaller intervals. And maybe the, 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 the one odd thing I would do is I'd do one 10-kilometer run once a year, you know, for the standard chartered run. That's about it. And I just didn't understand the whole concept of, you know, running for 30, 40, 50 kilometers for six days in a row. I remember Omar and Johnny telling us about this. I remember listening to you and Tom uh, uh, speak about this when you guys did it. And I said, oh, why would you put yourself through that? And I had this conflict with myself about it. I remember going back home and telling Sangeeta, these guys are running for 250 kilometers across the desert. It is so stupid. It's ludicrous. Why would they do that? And she's like, relax. It's okay. It's not your journey. Chill out. And I said, okay, that's fine. And I went into my room. I sat down and I came back in 10 minutes and said, it's okay. It's fine. I registered. It's fine. And she was like, what? <laughs> okay. But the whole point was that I wanted to see what it, the experience was about. And uh, until then, I'd never done a marathon. So the need was then to start running. So to that end now, I'm, I'm, I, think I'm, I think I'm happy with where I am with the running part of it. But I also know that I, I've never really done any competitive swimming or cycling. So the mindset is more, let's take on something which I'm not good at, and let's just see how we can better uh, that. So which is why uh, the second time around the medal was great, but I don't see a third one. Uh, yeah. It, good. Akbar, the last day, I saw you on Instagram flying through checkpoints, not wanting to speak to anyone, just going all in. How was it? Yeah, it was pretty incredible because um, everything that had happened before in terms of the long stage and coping with my emotions, getting through the challenge, finding almost a spiritual moment in the whole thing, um, I just wanted to run, you know, and I, I was just like, you know what, forget what's happening with your leg. They've given you enough painkillers. Just go out there and run because the race is about to finish and you just had a great time. Just go out and enjoy it. And I, that's what I did. And I just started, I started moving, I started running. And then I, th I think most runners will know I, I went into the run flow and it was, I just kept going and I was, it was, it's just, it was fantastic. And it was a, it was a culmination of the whole journey that I'd gone through and getting to the finish line and, um, Everything that I experienced, it's, it's for me, <laughs> has only reinforced the fact that I've basically stumbled onto something that I really, really love, which is ultra-long-distance ultra running, because it brings out something in me that um, is really special. So for me, getting to the finish line of MDS is almost like a, the start of a much longer journey. Danny... <laughs> we'll talk after. <laughs> Sorry. Vix, how was it crossing the finish line? Emotional? Or you just wanted to get home? No, no, it was very emotional for me. And, and just like Akbar said, I, I really enjoy um, the whole experience of ultra. Um, and just just seeing how much your body can do and how much your mind can push you to, to do things. So I definitely want to go along that path as well. And um, it's something Sorry, that... Natasha. Yeah. <laughs> And I, and I really wanted to, I really just wanted to finish MDS to prove to myself that I can get this done. Um, and something I thought that was just so impossible a year ago. Um, so that's why it was, a, it was just a massive turning point for me. Amazing. I could ask you guys questions for hours and listen for hours. But I think at this stage, just give them, all four of them, a massive round of applause. What they did is absolutely incredible. 
We've got about 10 minutes. If you guys have questions, we'll pass around some mics. You can ask them. Carlin has. So uh, one of the things, I, I was there on your first training thing at Al Qudra, and um, you're all slapped with a bit of Marcus Smith reality on the first night. Uh, second day was a bit tough. Um, what would you change in your preparation if you were to do it again? I basically would not get Marcus to cook that delicious steak at, at the end of... I mean, that was just, you know, that was a big teaser. That's what I would change, for sure. I think um, we'd put in more back-to-backs. I think that's... Uh, it. Uh, other than experiencing everything, going at a certain distance day after day after day, that's something very unique in itself. So especially if you're preparing for multi-stage, I think if you did more of those, like back-to-backs, back-to-backs, I think that prepares you really well for that. Just to let you guys know, the nature of ultra running is someone like Rickson finds it on the internet, sells it to these guys, they come and see me and they say, how can I make this fit into my job, (laughs) my training, my wife, and in some of their cases, my three kids. And when I start talking about back-to-back days, training weekends, they're just like, no, we can't do it. But I think you're absolutely true, mate. The more time you take to do back-to-back training days and longer weekends, the better it does prepare you. Uh, Other questions? Just to answer Colin's question, uh, on my side, I think what I would do differently is I'd use my gear uh, more regularly. So, for instance, we used uh, the campfire and the coals from there to heat our food. I would actually use uh, the stove that we would use at MDS. Uh, because it tends to blow out a lot quicker over there than it did over here in the dunes. So I'm sure while you're actually doing this, uh, there is a big nutritional aspect to it as well, right? Because while you're going through the multi-stage races, you're going through the 70K, I'm sure there is there are stages wherein you know you have to eat but there is just no way anything will go in. Did, did, did it happen to you? Yeah, I mean, there was, there was uh, three people in our tent, two from the British military and one, one guy who, was, uh, who ran across the U.S., the, the, the British Forrest Gump. And it was interesting to, to watch them because they've done so many marathons and ultras, and they just kept on eating and you just have to keep on eating and you, you realize that you lose maybe 3,000 to 4,000 calories a day but you just have to keep on consuming no matter how tired you are you have to make sure you put in those calories and, and those guys just kept on eating and even though I didn't feel like eating I was tired you know they were just non-stop and so that's one thing that I would probably do different is just to keep, make sure I push myself to keep on eating because it makes a massive difference even those 200 calories 300 calories that you eat really does give you a massive boost. So, yeah. And, I mean, you, there's a science to it. Like, uh, Marcus and Tom, they've always said to us that um, nutrition is so important during the race and you're, you have to keep eating. You see it. Like, for me, I, I, I saw the difference. Like, especially on the last day, because I knew I needed to, like, really get, get through the marathon, I was eating more than the previous days. What we usually did as part of our racing plan was that we eat every hour on the hour. But in the marathon thing, I started eating every 30 minutes. So I was eating more. And it reflected. My energy levels were different. So 
it's so important, like when you're doing these things, to just constantly be eating because it makes a massive difference. Hi guys, um, I just wanted to ask, so the solitude that you experience over there, over the stages, once you finish, what are maybe those first 24 hours like when you sort of transition back, you get your phone, there's obviously a flood of messages, Instagram, from obviously experiencing and I'm guessing the positive side of being alone with your thoughts to probably an overwhelming um, connection again. How do you manage that and was that a smooth transition? So that's a really good question because um, uh, you do go off the grid completely. A lot of people actually go back for that, like Rickson said, for that particular experience because for 10 days you're completely switched off. Um, people respond to it in different ways. In my case, um, we, when you finish the race, you, they, they take you back to that Uzazat, which is the first town, and they all give you, they give you a hotel room so you can go have your first shower after like seven, eight days and your first um, uh, sleep in a proper bed. Um, for, for me, it was weird because I went into that room and I, and I looked at the shower and I looked at the bed and I was like, okay, this is weird. And I actually, one day after the race finished, I didn't want to connect. I didn't want to go back on the grid. Um, I looked at my bag that I'd been with me. It's like reverse, like Stockholm syndrome. I looked at my bag and I was like, I don't want to open this bag because this bag has given me so much. And the first night, I slept on the floor. I didn't sleep on the bed. So it takes you time. Some people get back into it really quickly. Some people takes some maybe forever. Yeah. I'll address the technology part of it. I find life to be a, a balance. If you ask Sangeeta, my wife, uh, she probably placed bets that I'll become a hermit and live in the wilderness quicker than most of you would think I would. Uh, but you know, it is a balance. I mean, we all have different roles. So um, I have a business to run. I am a husband. I'm a father. I've got you know, there are so many things going on at the same time. I could allow myself those eight or nine days of absolute uh, disconnectivity, which meant that I would still come back after a run, and I would make a call to Sangeeta from satellite phone that they had available over there, just to see, is everything okay? Are the kids okay? Is everything fine? What was your day like? That's it. But other than that, there was zero business to attend to. But the moment we were in an area of reception for our cell phone, it had to start again, which I think is a, is a good balance. I, I think I will probably, I probably use it lesser than before, but you know, as time goes by and as we continue to live our daily lives, I'm sure these things will start seeping back into your lives, you know. I don't see it as toxic, but I think there is a balance that needs to be maintained, and uh, this was my way of dealing with it. So if you disconnect, you disconnect, sure, and, but now we're, we're here in this life, so maybe get an opportunity to make this uh, uh, more frequent rather than have eight days of disconnection at one shot. Maybe, you know, and we do that. When we get away from, when we get out of town, there's uh, zero work. So then it's the uh, social stuff that we're trying to balance. And, you know, my takeaway from this whole thing is I need to, the decisions have to be fewer on a daily basis. Do I, do I not? Just, you know, it was easy. Like Vic said, we woke up every morning and we wore the same shirt. Uh, today before coming, I was thinking, okay, should I wear this T-shirt or something else? We didn't have that problem over there. It was the one shirt you took. 
So you just wore the same thing every day. It didn't matter what it looked like. It was dirty. There was a stain on it. It didn't matter. But it's not the real world we live in. When I become a hermit, though, you know. Congratulations. Amazing job. Especially together, I'm sure it was a special experience. Uh, but since you're together, I'm sure there's some feelings that weren't expressed, possibly in front of each other. So which one of you cried? Oh, I, I definitely cried when I saw every night which, when I got Which messages. one of us cried first or which one of us cried? Also a few times. Oh, I cried in Marcus's messages as well. Like I said, I didn't understand them, so I cried. But I mean, I cried when I got my kids' messages, my friends, and all of you guys. That was, that was quite emotional. And, for me. and how was your first shower? Oh, it was amazing. Like, Akbar fell asleep on the floor. I fell asleep in the shower. Yeah. I think I, I used all the water from Uzazat. Yeah. That, that was a great feeling, just to come back and sort of reflect. And, and there, that was really a good point. Awesome. Akbar, do you want to say something? I just, uh, one thing I just wanted to say was, um, like, for us, four of us, it was obviously an amazing experience. And the... the um, uh, the support we got from our friends and family and people like it's it's really amazing and it's quite humbling but it does put things in perspective in terms of what other people were doing there as well like you think you went there and you did an amazing thing but there's some real legends out there you know I mean there there was a lady there who's running on on one leg and there's an 84 year old guy who's who's from Japan who's been coming for the last 20-30 years and so you realize that, and the dog, yes, cactus, and but you realize that you know there's some lot of special people out there, and uh, it's um, it it puts things in perspective, like in terms of where you are in your life. But there are people out there really crushing life. Awesome, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. A final round of applause for these guys. Thank you.